This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. All right, come with me please tonight to John's Gospel, chapter 11. And uh, it's a very familiar uh, portion of Scripture here. John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was that Martha who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he was already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Now tonight we are returning uh, to this series of studies we've been doing on the Master's Men about the Twelve Apostles. May I remind you that we have already uh, looked at Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Philip, and Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, as he's often called, and Matthew. But so tonight, we had a guest this morning, but tonight we're going to return, and we want to look at Thomas. And Thomas is often depicted as, and we've often said this, as doubting Thomas. But actually, I think that's a little bit unfair to give him that nickname. I think perhaps he was overly cautious. Often he was negative, and sometimes he was quite pessimistic. Uh, he didn't take things on face value. Thomas's nature and personality was such, you had to prove it to him. Whatever you would say to him, if it needed evidence and proof, he asked for it. He wasn't just going to accept it because you said it. That was the type of personality that he was. And so, being cautious 
and being careful in itself is a good quality, certainly preferable than being naive and gullible. And lots of Christians are both naive and very gullible. But Thomas as a man was not like that. However, I think that his being overcautious and always, always, always questioning, I think sometimes that was a, a weakness rather than a strength at times. And you'll see later on how he even challenges what the Lord said. Uh, Thomas is always listed in the second group of four, along with Philip and Nathaniel and Matthew. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their Gospels say absolutely nothing about Thomas at all, other than list him among the 12 apostles. And it's only John, only John is the one who reveals anything about him. And it's not very much, but it's enough for us to see tonight something of his nature, his character, his personality, and lets us kind of end on his life and lets us see why he said what he said and did what he did. And so John is the only one who captures this for us. Now, we know nothing of his parentage. The Bible doesn't tell us anything. Uh, we can't be sure of his profession, but possibly he was a fisherman because that period between Christ's uh, crucifixion and his resurrection and between that and his ascension, during that period, you remember how they get a bit disillusioned at times, and Peter says, I go a-fishing. And Thomas was one who went with him fishing. So possibly he was a fisherman. Most commentators believe, well, certainly the Bible names four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John as fishermen. Most commentators believe there were seven. And it looks like Thomas was uh, one of those. Now, John actually calls him Didymus, Thomas Didymus. And Thomas in Hebrew means twin, and Didymus in Greek means twin. So it's obvious then he was a twin. Whether he had a twin brother or a twin sister, we don't know. Whether they themselves became followers of Christ, we simply don't know. The Holy Spirit doesn't reveal that to us. But what we do know, he was a twin. Now, some commentators say that this may refer to his, his twin nature. It a kind of a dual nature. On the one hand, he was always questioning, always questioning. And on the other hand, once he found out the truth of what he was questioning, if it was true, then he wholeheartedly embraced it. Unequivocally, he took it on board. So there's that kind of dual nature. And some believe maybe that's what the twin is referring to. And, uh, but be that as it may, John calls him the twin. So tonight we want to examine three incidents that John records for us uh, regarding Thomas's life. And remember John's writing this 60 years after the events. Uh, but these things is coming very, very clear to him. So these are things about Thomas and other the disciples he wrote about too that he remembers vividly. And uh, they, were, they were poignant to him. Of course, we know it's the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of the gospel. So really, it's the Holy Spirit that brought this to his attention for us to read and for us to learn some lessons through as well. And so the first incident, this took place during uh, Jesus' last days of ministry, towards the end of his ministry. And this was regarding the timing up to Jerusalem uh, to the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was there that, as he often did when he got the chance, he would teach in the temple. 
Now remember that the Sanhedrin, who were the, the 70 of the theological elders of Israel, they absolutely hated Jesus with a passion. Most of them anyway hated Jesus with a passion. And they looked for every opportunity in his words and his deeds to accuse him and to criticize him and if possible to kill him. They actually wanted to kill him at the first opportunity. And in John 10, 31, there was a spat with these uh, Pharisees and scribes. And it says in John 10, 31, the Jews took up stones to stone him. Not for the first time. And so this was coming into the, the year of opposition. There was a time of great popularity. But then you're coming now towards the end of his life, and it's the time of opposition. And of course, it's the religious establishment was stirring up the opposition. And so because of that incident in John 10, Jesus escaped from their midst, and he went over Jordan to Perea. So he was out of Judea at that point. And it was a good place to be. Uh, many, many people came on to him. Many received him. Uh, and he did great things. And it was there in Perea where he taught, did a lot of teaching, particularly uh, with the parables. It was there he taught the good Samaritan and the prodigal son and the rich man and the beggar Lazarus and the great supper uh, and, and the rich fool who built many barns and so forth. And so he gave great teaching in that area. And he was there for about six months between the Feast of Tabernacles and the next Passover uh, which would be his last Passover with his disciples. And so that six-month period was a very rich time to be with his disciples and to teach the people, and the disciples loved it. Because at least there, they weren't around Jerusalem, and they were kind of out of reach a little bit from those who were plotting and planning against him. But in that period, they were there, dark, ominous clouds were gathering, particularly in Jerusalem, particularly among the established religious Jews and they were plotting and planning how can we get him what can we do to trip him and trick him and get him and legally kill him and so that was going on so danger was looming even though they were kind of safe over there enjoying that period things was lovely and you can be sure the disciples loved that because they weren't under any pressure because while they were with Jesus if the, if the religious establishment was trying to kill Jesus then they would be next and they knew that but at least over there, they were out of harm's way. But then, news reaches him that his good friend Lazarus in Bethany was very, very sick. And the message came from his two sisters, uh, Martha and Mary. Would you please come? Uh, he whom you love is sick. In other words, would you come and heal him? Now, Jesus knew by the time he got that message that Lazarus was dead. And instead of coming, he waited two more days. And he said to his disciples, he said to them, our friend Lazarus is sleeping. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, he'll do well. That'll make him better. He said, no, he is actually dead. But I am going to go and awaken him from that sleep of death. Now, that was the last thing they wanted to hear because Bethany was just two miles from Jerusalem. In fact, you could see Bethany from the temple precincts. So that was a dangerous, dangerous place to go and to be, particularly at this time. So you can understand why those disciples didn't want to do this. They, they didn't want to go there because they felt for sure if we go there, we're in big, big trouble because these people are out to get us. But Jesus was determined that he was going to go. 
Now, the last memory they had of being there was those Jews with rocks in their hands baying for Jesus' blood, and they escaped that. That was their last memory, and that was fresh in their minds. That was only six months ago. So you can understand why, boy, we don't want to go there. But Jesus was determined. And then Thomas, the twin, in John 11, he says to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now here's that twin nature, could you say? Pessimistic. If we go there, we're going to die with him. And so that was quite pessimistic. I mean, he, he had just, his whole mind was, we're going to die if we go there. But Jesus is going there and he'll die, so we'll just die with him. So on the one hand, he's pessimistic. On the other hand, he's very courageous. Because none of the rest of the disciples were saying this. Only Thomas. He was the only one piped up and said, listen, boys, I know we, you really don't want to go there, but he's going to go. The master's going. I'm going to go. And if it means dying with him, so be it. We'll die with him. And that outburst must have inspired and challenged the rest of the disciples. Usually Peter would have been the one to say things like that, but for whatever reason he didn't. It was Thomas. And so Thomas says, let's go with him. And so they did go with him. So on the one hand, you had this courage. On the other hand, you had this pessimism. And that kind of summed up what his nature was like. One minute he was negative and pessimistic. The next minute he was full of courage and bravery and wanted to go. That was kind of just what he was like. And so here we see a negative assumption that it would be curtains for Christ and his disciples, but a positive declaration. Well, if they kill him, they're going to have to kill us too. So let's just all go. Now, thank God they did go because they were going to see an incredible miracle. By the time they would get there, this man would have already been dead four days. By this time, he stinketh. So this was going to be some miracle for this to happen. And they were going to see it. They were going to be there. So it was a good job they went there. Most of us, in a sense, are like Thomas. We, we wrestle with, with this twin nature. We wrestle with this being negative and positive. Being, having faith and having fear. You know, being at peace and being anxious. You know, we're up and down, often like that, aren't we? Some days it's great and some days you're just full of joy and some days then you're just in the depths. Some days you have lots of faith and you can believe for anything. Other times you can hardly believe for anything at all. And oftentimes that's what we're like. So we can't be too hard on Thomas. Because if the truth be told, oftentimes that's what we're like too. And so we wrestle with these tensions in our lives. On the one hand, faith. On the other hand, fear. On the one hand, hope. On the other hand, despair. On the one hand, anxiety. On the other hand, rest. On the one hand, peace. On the one hand, worry. We kind of like that a little bit. We shouldn't be. But oftentimes we actually are. And so we see here in the first incident that we see this negative, positive man, and yet a brave and courageous man at the same time, Thomas the twin. The second incident in John 14, and again, you know these scriptures really, really well. 
Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This second incident, by this time Jesus had entered Jerusalem, riding upon the colt, the fall of an ass, multitudes waving their palm branches shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And so they felt they were welcoming in their Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah. And now these scenes must have heartened the disciples uh, because they too were waiting for this kingdom to come. They too wanted Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem, riding upon this donkey with these people shouting hosannas, they too couldn't wait for Jesus to get there and to raise up his kingdom, to kick out the Romans, to set up his kingdom, and they would sit on his right hand on his left, and they would rule over all. That was their vision. That was their dream. Now, we know that Jesus was speaking of a spiritual kingdom, but not them. That wasn't even in their radar at all. All they could see was this physical, military, commercial, political kingdom that Christ was going to set up. He's the Messiah. This is our golden age. We're entering into Israel. That's going to be it. That's what they could see. However, the Sanhedrin, again, these religious leaders, they had far more diabolical plans <laughs> that they were hatching because they wanted to kill Jesus. And so Jesus now spends some time with his disciples in that upper room, and he spends that time there. He partakes with them the last Passover meal, and again he uses this occasion to speak of his impending death. But they couldn't grasp it. All they could think about was, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? He's talking about dying, and they're thinking about hey, this kingdom's going to be set up and we're going to be the big shots in it. We're going to rule it for him. That's all they could think about. They hadn't even grasped what he was saying to them. And so he tells them then something they do not want to hear. He said, I am going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'm going to come back again and receive you. And they're sitting thinking to themselves, what is he talking about? What is this business about going away and getting a place for us and then coming back? We don't understand that. We don't want him to go away. This is the place. He's here right now. This is where the kingdom's going to be set up. So what's he talking about? So you can understand their thinking because they weren't on the same wavelength at all. It wasn't in their logic to think that way. All they could think was a physical kingdom. So this business of him going away and, and getting another place, sometime, somewhere, someplace, 
someday they couldn't get their heads around that. No, it's today. It's here. It's not. It's kingdom now. That's all they can think of. The kingdom's coming right now. Not sometime later, someplace later, somehow later. It's right now. And he says, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas, the questioner, Thomas the cautious, he said, Lord, if I could paraphrase, I haven't got the faintest idea. I don't even know what you're talking about. I have no idea where you're going. Then how can, how can we know the way? If we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? It just seemed foolishness to him. This is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the Word made flesh, and he's giving them his Word, and Thomas contradicts it. Now, we would never do that. We would never contradict the Word of God. Sure, we wouldn't. But just like Thomas, we would actually. It didn't suit Thomas. It didn't suit any of the disciples. What he was saying didn't suit them. That wasn't what they wanted to hear. And we so easily contradict what we don't want to hear. You ever read a scripture and you read it and think, hmm, I, I, don't, I don't know if I really want to read that again because it pricks us. Or our God challenges us through scriptures and we quickly turn the page over and we know God's saying something, but it's not what we want to hear. So, so we, we, we find a way to contradict what he wants us to do. We find a way to get out of it and contradict it. And, and all of us have done that in the past. All of us, without exception. We come to a chapter in the Bible. We come to a portion of the scriptures. And we look at it and think, hmm, it's a long time since I read that. I'm not too sure. And we quickly turn that over and move on to the easier bits. But the challenging bits, the bits that challenge our lives, the bits that challenge us to lay down something or to do something or go somewhere, be something, huh? We'll find, we'll find a way to contradict that. And that's what Thomas here was doing. Peter did the same thing, did he not? Peter did. You know, Jesus was telling them, he told them for months and he was telling them that what was going to happen. And, and it just cut across the grain of what Peter, how Peter thought. And he thought, no, 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 that, that, that can't really happen. <laughs> Get thee behind me, Satan, you savor the things that be of men, not the things that be of God. <laughs> and then on another occasion, uh, you know, Peter says, look, if all they leave you, I'll never leave you. Jesus says, before the morning, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times, Lord, I will lay my life down for you. He was always contradicting Jesus, just like Thomas because it didn't suit what he wanted to hear or what he thought the way it should be. And the truth is, we're not much different. If it's something that cuts across what we want or goes across our grain or really, really, really challenges us, sometimes we find a way to contradict that because we don't want to do it. Mary and Martha had the same problem, hadn't they? We didn't read on there, but had we read on, you would see that when Jesus arrived, of course he was dead, he was buried. Four days. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus said, you're going to see the glory of God. 
Mary said the same, Lord, if you had just been here, if you just had a common time, you're going to see the glory of God. But Lord, the Lord says you're going to raise him. But Lord, I know that in the last day, I know in the resurrection he'll rise. And Jesus says, but I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. He that believes in me shall never die. He that lives and believes in me shall rise again. Yeah, and yes, I, I know that, Lord, but that, that's in the resurrection. No, I'm the resurrection. See how they were contradicting. They couldn't understand. They didn't get it, so they were contradicting Jesus. No wonder Jesus groaned in spirit, it says. He groaned in spirit. I'm sure sometimes he got exasperated, didn't he? How, how long must I bear with you? Can you still not see it? <laughs> but they couldn't. And sometimes we're exactly the same. We just don't get it. And so Mary and Martha, they were contradicting. But Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and what a mighty miracle that was. For them to stand there and see that with their own two eyes, what an occasion that must have been at that tomb when that stone was rolled away. What occasion that was when he came out of that grave and he walked out of there with the grave clothes. What, a, what an occasion that must have been to be there. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What a statement. And really... I suppose if it hadn't have been the disciples not understanding, not getting it, not grasping it, that gave Jesus the opportunity to say these things. And what this is, this is one of the great statements of the New Testament. This is one of the greatest statements of the New Testament. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Particularly in the world that we live in, that's pluralistic, that's inclusive, that everybody, doesn't matter what you think as long as you believe it, that's okay. You know, this is the liberal world we live in. And so anybody's belief, as long as they're sincere, that's okay. There's many ways to God. If you even believe in God, you can do all of that there. But Jesus cuts across all of that and all religions and all cults and all unbelief. And he says, no, there's only one way and I am the way. There's only one truth, really, and I am the truth. There's only one way I am that. And so he brings that across. John Phillips, he says, Christ's reply to Thomas answers the three most important questions of the human heart. Man asks, how can I be saved? He replies, I am the way. Man asks, how can I be sure? He replies, I am the truth. Man asks, how can I be satisfied? He replies, I am the life. And as long as we know him, we will know the way. As long as we know his word, we will have the truth. As long as we abide in him, we will have his life. And so at least, at least, that elicited this great statement from the lips of the master himself. The third incident, and the final incident, is found in John chapter 20. Verse 19. Then the same day evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. He said to them, Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into the side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Jesus had been crucified. The unthinkable had actually happened. And apart from John and just two or three women at the cross, all of them, including Thomas, had fled for their lives and were lying low because of fear of the Jews, because they felt that they would probably be next to be arrested. And it seems that some of them had probably gone into an upper room or the upper room, and, uh, and there they were in hiding as it were. However, at the earliest opportunity, a few of the women went to the grave because they wanted to finish the preparation of the burial because it was hurried because of the Passover. And uh, their only concern was, well, who's going to roll away the stone? But when he got there, the stone was rolled away, and the angel said to him, who are you seeking? He is not here. He has risen. And what an exciting moment that must have been. And of course, then, they, they ran to tell the disciples that the Lord had risen indeed. The tomb is empty. And then Peter and John, remember how they ran to the tomb? And when they got there, Peter just brushed past John and jumped into there to see for himself. And then John looked in and he saw how the grave clothes was lying and they were absolutely convinced he is definitely risen. And then they get back and they tell the rest of the disciples. And then come Sunday evening. Resurrection Sunday evening. The disciples, 10 of them, Judas had hung himself, but at suicide. Thomas is not there. But the ten of them were there. And suddenly, unexpectedly, without any warning, no knock at the door, no opening of the boat, suddenly Jesus just appears in the midst. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure they were quaking in their boots. They thought they had saw a ghost. I think it's in Luke 24. He asked for some fish and some, some to eat to show him, I'm not a ghost, look, you can touch me, handle me, see. A ghost is not flesh and bone like me. And then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. They were absolutely ecstatic and excited. Wonderful. And they couldn't wait to tell Thomas. They went and searched and found Thomas and says, we have seen the Lord. 
And he says, I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> I don't believe a word of it. He must have thought they were hallucinating. No, he says, I don't believe that. But we've seen him, look, we, could, we touched him. He said, touch me. We, he says, look, unless, unless I see him with these two eyes myself, unless I put my finger in those prints, I will not believe. See, that was his nature, wasn't it? That's what he was like. Overly cautious. It can be a good thing, but it can be a two-edged sword, can't it? So somewhere between that first Sunday night and the next Sunday night, I don't know what happened to Thomas. He must have had a rethink. He maybe thought to himself, you know, surely 10 of them couldn't be wrong. 10 of them. All 10 were there. And they say, this is what we saw. And everyone gives the same testimony. And that logical, rational mind began to work. And he must have thought, do you know what? If a second chance comes, I, th I think I'll go. If, if they go to that room again, I, I think next week I'll, I'll be with them. And he was. And he got his second chance. And again, suddenly Jesus appears. He appears. And he says, peace be unto you. Because I'm sure they jumped. <laughs> if suddenly somebody just out of thin air just appeared in front, I bet you would jump, wouldn't you? I would anyway. The hair would stand up in the back of your neck. Peace, he says. Peace be to you. Calm down. Everything's all right. Now, Thomas, he says, come on. Come on. He says, reach your hand out. Come on, touch me. You wanted to touch me? Touch me. Put your finger in there. But he didn't need to. He was absolutely convinced. And you see, this is this twin nature, isn't it? I, I will not believe, unless I touch on But suddenly, suddenly he's totally convinced. And he says those wonderful words, my Lord and my God. What a moment that must have been in his life. But you see, he missed, he missed that first Sunday night. Unless we have got a, a, a real good reason not to miss Sunday night, we ought not to miss Sunday night. I, I, I'm long enough in the tooth, and some of Herbie and Moore is long enough in the tooth too, to us to remember Sunday night used to be your biggest night. You know why? Because all the believers that come out on Sunday morning came out on Sunday night and brought Sunday with them on Sunday night. Now half your believers doesn't come out on Sunday night. Now you may be working, you may have little kids or something, you may maybe do your job, maybe do your health. There's all kinds of good reasons. I'm not saying it for that, but I'm saying if you just can't be bothered. There's people, ah, I can't be bothered. Sure, if I go, your man will preach for an hour anyway. You know? But I can sit here and watch TV for three hours. See what I'm saying? You know, I can't be bothered going tonight. I'm a wee bit tired. I just not bother tonight. But because he'll drone on a bit tonight. And I've probably heard that before anyway, because I've been going there a long time. And we make all, you know, you know, the real problem is we're indifferent. We're apathetic. We've lost some fire. We've lost our first love. And Thomas that first night, that first Sunday night, he missed that meeting. And boy, when he missed that, he missed a lot. But thank God he was determined he wasn't going to miss the next one. And isn't the truth that the one you miss is maybe the one that God was going to speak to you? Leslie Flynn said, here's what he missed. He missed Christ in the midst. 
The promise of God is, if we meet in his name, to honor and to worship him and to gather around his word, if we do that, his promise is that by his spirit, he will be in our midst. We may not always sense and feel that, but his promise is, he is there. And if he's in our midst, then he can't speak to our hearts and he can't touch us, but we have to be there. He missed the opportunity to touch Jesus. Jesus said to the disciples, touch me. Come on, put your hand out, touch me. But he missed that. He wasn't there. He missed the peace that Christ gave that night. Twice he says, peace be unto you. But Thomas wasn't at peace. He was probably at home or he was having a walk somewhere, muddled and fuddled in his thinking, no peace in his heart. But if he had been there that night, he missed the opportunity to fellowship with Jesus. Jesus was there to fellowship with him, but he wasn't there to fellowship with Jesus. He missed the, the chance to hear Christ open up the scriptures. If you read Luke 24, you know, remember the, the two in the road to Emmaus and how he opened up the scriptures to them and their hearts were warmed. Didn't our hearts burn within us? And then how when he, when he, when he recognized them, how he disappeared out of the sight. And then they ran to tell the disciples. And whenever they were telling the disciples in that room, suddenly Jesus appears. And he opens up the scriptures to them. And Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all things concerning himself. Imagine missing that. Imagine Jesus teaching them that and he missed that. He missed the commissioning to preach Christ to all nations. That was the commission he gave them. He missed the final instructions of Christ. You know, Jesus was about to go. These were his, more or less his final words. He missed it. He missed the breath of the Holy Spirit breathed upon them. Thomas missed that. He missed the joy of being with Christ. They said the disciples, they were glad when they saw the Lord. Now even when the disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he found it hard, didn't he? He found it hard. And let me say something that you need to think about. Unless, and this goes for church at all, unless you have a real reason not to be there and you miss the house of God and the company of the saints, the more unbelieving you will become. Thomas was unbelieving. If Thomas had been there that first Sunday night, all his questions would have been answered instantly, but he wasn't. And for a whole week, he was tortured in his mind. Thank God he did go the second week, but he was unbelieving. And the more we begin to miss church for no good reason, and sometimes there is a good reason, but for no good reason, I promise you, the more unbelieving you become. Your faith weakens. It's the old story where you take the coal out of the fire, and when you take that coal out of the fire, it cools down. It has to be in the rest of the coals to keep warm. Ah. Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. So he's acknowledging Christ's lordship over his life and Christ's lordship over all creation. My Lord and my God. What a 
powerful statement he made. Do you know those are the very last recorded words of Thomas in Scripture? Nice to have last words, isn't it? And so the Holy Spirit leaves that for us. The last recorded words of Thomas in Scripture was said, My Lord and my God. If that was the last recorded words of our life, that would be good if that was what we could say too, isn't it? Tradition tells us that he traveled as far as India and preached the gospel there and died as a martyr kneeling on his knees in prayer. All of these died as martyrs. All of them gave their lives for Christ and for the gospel, for the kingdom. And Thomas was no exception. But this is Thomas. Once he believed, once he was sure you could not shake him, he would never turn back. Once he knew this is the truth, then he would die for it. And he did die for it. He died for Christ, and he died for the truth. So let us be like Thomas. Let us make up our minds about Christ and his gospel and let us live our lives with certainty. And if necessary, if some time comes and we are persecuted, trust God that we'll be able to withstand that for Christ's sake. The church is coming under all kinds of pressures. At least in this country, nobody is standing out there with the rocks in their hands trying to stone us to death. But there's all kinds of pressures going on at the moment to sap the church's strength and to weaken the church. And there will come a time, they're arresting people in, in England for preaching on the streets. Could you ever believe that that would happen in Great Britain where somebody could preach the gospel on the street and the police would come and arrest them and threaten them with jail? And if it wasn't for the Christian Institute fighting their cause and where the police had to apologize because they had no law to do that. But it just shows you the againstness against Christ and against the gospel that we're facing today. So let's be like Thomas. There may be times whenever we're up and times we're down, but let's embrace the truth and stick with it and stick to it. And let's go forward in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.